Hey everyone, this is Elle Elliott and welcome back to the Interloper Podcast. In this episode, we continue to expand the conversation around land and ownership in our conversation with Sam Ferrazano and Melissa Knowles. In 2006, Sam started Equinox Studios in South Seattle and has since been joined by Melissa, where they continue to grow and expand their values of collective ownership, creativity, community, and saying yes a lot. You might notice that I'm not a part of the conversation because I had something really important come up that day, but Connor said he really loved doing his first solo interview, so I hope you enjoy it as much as he did. A few things before we get started. First, our guests are recording from their studio in Georgetown, which is an industrial district, so you can hear a lot of trains in the background, especially in the beginning of their audio. It can be pretty distracting in the first few minutes, but please hang in there because the audio gets a lot better and you really don't want to miss out on this truly innovative story. Second, we normally don't censor or beep anything out to discourage the thought that there are things we're not supposed to say. But in this particular episode, there was one phrase Sam wanted bleeped out. And so to respect the wishes of our guests, we inserted a singular beep. Enjoy the episode. You got it. No, you got it. <laughs> this is a shtick we got here. It's, it's, uh, it's paper great. accident. Right. Yeah. yeah. So I'm rock. She's paper. So I'm Sam Farazano and um, a lot of different things, I guess. I'm, I'm the founder of Equinox Studios in sunny West Georgetown, the, uh, the vacation paradise of South Seattle, um, and uh, doing a bunch of work in the neighborhood to support affordable workspace for artists and artisans and to create affordable housing and community serving commercial space in an effort to do genuine, comprehensive community development. And I work for Sam. (laughs) My name is Melissa, Melissa Knowles. I've been doing art for my whole life, pretty much. I moved to Seattle working with a circus performing company called Acrobatic Conundrum and met Sam and, uh, you know, we've been hanging out trying to build a community since. Yeah. When did Equinox start? Uh, Equinox started in 2006. I've been doing similar work since 1995 in Seattle. Well, so I wanted to bring you all in on this podcast because this current conversation series is called This Land is My Land. And we're considering what does it mean to belong? in particular to land, to location, to place. And we're really trying to expand this conversation to think about migration, ownership, gentrification. There's just so many things that come into this conversation about what does it mean to belong to this land? And then how do we actually, how does that help us belong to one another? So I'd love to just hear a little bit about, yeah, how did Equinox start? And I was really curious about this idea of collective ownership in particular for artists and how does that actually manifest? There's a lot in there. Um, I really appreciate that you say belonging to the land instead of the land belonging to us. Yeah. Um, I think that's a pretty specific way of getting the thought across that we are just visitors here or whatnot. So, I mean, Equinox has been a long journey, mostly of me selfishly just trying to find space to do art and make a lot of noise and set shit on fire. Um, But realizing that the way to really be effective at doing that is to do it in community and do it in shared space with other people and collaborate and cross-pollinate and co-inspire and co-perspirate and all the all the things and so i actually had a building prior to equinox um, that we were working to buy that uh, kind of came to an end 
and we needed, I promised my tenants that we would find a, a home. And so we spent a long time trying to figure out how we could do that, where we would, where we go, what we do and, and ended up starting Equinox. And it was, the building was about three times bigger than what we needed. Um, but we were like, well, there's nothing else available right now. So we're going to go big. And yeah, we, I mean, we basically just kind of started this on a wing and a prayer, um, on credit cards. Uh, uh, we had a sensitive owner of the building that, you know, believed in what we were trying to do and supported us in that. And he had it on the market for sale. And I said, Hey, can't buy it today, but I can buy it within five years. Um, but I need you to lease it to me today because we, we need to get a building. And so, yeah, we just kind of set, set out on this road. Um, and at the time it was, you know, a tenant would come in and give me a security deposit and pay first month's rent. And I'd go buy more sheetrock and build another space and come back and then find a new tenant and then kind of keep doing that. And so we built up to uh, about 53 different tenants in the building. Um, and it was a pretty flowing uh, community. And, and all of that was not through advertising, but through people talking about talking to people and being being in relationship with people in a way that invited people in to that. So we were able to buy the building within that five-year period. And with the support and the, you know, the previous owner, you know, we, we had a handshake deal on it. And, but he followed through on the handshake deal and, and everything was good. And then a couple of years later, the buildings across the street came on the market sort of all at once. And we didn't have any money, but... We were, I was like, hey, we got to buy these buildings so that other people don't buy them and so that we can hold this space and expand this community. And we had a big waiting list of people that were interested in getting in and being a part of it. And so when I started trying to figure out how we could do that, I looked at the equity in the building and looked at the value of the building and how much debt we had and all that. And it was pretty surprising how far we had come in basically um, eight years because uh, this was 2014 at the time, and having basically a huge amount of equity in the building that came from building it out, first of all, into different, you know, all these 38 different spaces, but also appreciation in the neighborhood and the market and all that kind of stuff. But that investment was not just my own. It was all of the tenants telling their friends and starting this whole cascading effect of people wanting to be a part of it. Um, it was them supporting it and bringing the public in to, you know, support the tenants and, and support them financially through buying things and work. So I started trying to think about that idea that it wasn't just me and that it was all of us in it together. And how could I realize, how could I recognize that? in a meaningful way for all the tenants that it, it wasn't just my profit. It wasn't my equity. It was all of ours. So I set about trying to create this tenant ownership model. So figuring out how I could reflect people's collaborative effort in a, in a financial metric, right? So we created this model that basically was a lot of paperwork was a lot of paperwork <laughs> and we i looked around trying to find another model that you know was a collective ownership of lease for from tenants and i couldn't find any other models out there there's a lot of like residential things there's you know employee owned companies these kind of thing but tenant owned 
commercial real estate was not a thing. So we, we invented it basically with the lawyers and the accountants and everybody telling me I was crazy and basically saying, well, why not just, you know, if you're feeling good at the end of the year, just write a check to everybody. And I was like, that's not the point because this isn't about Sam just being generous or, you know, being the cool kid. It's about this community all feeling part of it and being a part of it and creating it together. So we created a stock ownership mechanism that basically not for bringing cash to the table or investing money in it, but but basically just by paying your rent and being a good steward of the community, you get stock for relative to every dollar you pay in and rent. And long term, the the modeling is that you get about a 10% return if if all goes well. And along the way, if Equinox is making money on an annual basis, then there's a six to eight percent profit at the company level. But the trick on all of this is that we as a community decide what to do with that money, whether it's now or in the future. So if we have a profit this year, everybody can put an idea on the table for what to do with it. It could be pay it out to the stock. It could be do streetscape improvement projects to make the place look better. It could be start a program for at-risk youth to see art as a possible future. It could be anything. So people can put an idea forward, throw it on the table. We bet those ideas and then we vote on it. And whatever the community votes on, we, we do with that money. And that can go for the long-term dividends as well. If we get down 10 years down the road and we've got enough equity and paid down enough debt, we could decide to pay all that money out to the stockholders or we could buy another building and have more people take advantage of affordable art space. Uh, and now that that's actually evolving now uh, in this new effort that we're doing as we move from just the affordable art space into building affordable housing and affordable community serving spaces, all of the the owners here, because essentially every tenant is an owner with me in it. We had unanimous support to basically say, okay, we're gonna we're gonna stop taking personal gain for this, and we're gonna pay that all forward into the new uh, development work, and basically say that we want to create this future for more people to be able to get what we got. And we'll still, there's still a financial benefit because we get affordable space and we get to be a part of this. So there is real financial benefit, but there's also this benefit of now it's going to be in kind of a land trust model um, forever. So all the future peoples will be able to have affordable space. It's pretty cool that way too. The other thing I really like about the direction of the moving land onto to a community-owned model is it's like this system of oppression that we've created where only the people in power and with wealth can continue to have power and wealth. It, it changes that dynamic a little bit because suddenly other people can also start to acquire wealth if the land is not part of the equation. And if we can make things more equal and less oppressive, we all win. We all do better when we all do better is one of my favorite things that I hear Sam say all the time. We all That's do it. better That's when we all do better. One of the reasons I wanted to talk to y'all is I just love the model that y'all are doing and one of the things we hope on this podcast is actually to tell people new ideas. I mean, it sounds like you literally invented this idea 
or like invented at least legally what it means to have a collective tenant owned development, which is just, it sounds like it's actually replicable and something that would actually be really amazing for communities, not just in Seattle to like be a part of, but maybe across the US. And yeah, I just want to say that this is amazing that y'all are doing this. <laughs> well, thank you. It, it, it's pretty cool. I mean, I think the, the whole point all along the way has been to try to create a replicable model where within the structural economic system in America, we could actually have equity and have people that it's not just a one-sided transactional thing, that it is actually being in relationship, both in person, but also financially, that it's not just about, okay, you pay me rent, I'm your landlord, here's your key, and that's it. My, my hope is that it will keep evolving and that other people will keep trying to do similar things. And I'm, I enjoy trying to help mentor people into creating similar things or the same thing. One thing I was really excited about bringing Melissa in on this conversation as well is that when we talked, Melissa, you had mentioned that you don't believe property ownership should be a thing at all. <laughs> and so, so I'd love to just hear, cause actually what I, what Equinox is doing is like in my, at least in my opinion, like one of these ideal utopian ideas of what property ownership could look like. But then I'm really curious about this other radical idea, which is no property ownership. So I'd love to just hear what your thoughts are and how that belief came about for you. I bought a house on land for the first time uh, about seven years ago with a friend of mine. And I think that like step in that direction caused me to think more critically about it as well as just all the work people are doing right now to subvert our culture of dominance and ownership over everything. I mean, it's in our culture, it's in our language. My sister, my daughter, my husband, my friend, and my land. Like, for someone white in America, it is the beginning of our history here. And, you know, it wasn't like that before we were here. And it wasn't that long ago, the native people, the Duwamish, the other tribes in the area up here were the stewards of the land. So I, I think questioning it is a step in the direction away from owning it and living in this culture of fear that it's mine and it can be taken away and into the direction of stewardship and relationship where the land isn't belonging to us, but we are all in community, like with the land. You had mentioned that something Equinox was considering was giving land back to the Duwamish or giving buildings back to the Duwamish. And so I was curious if y'all would be willing to talk about that and what those conversations have kind of looked like for you and your tenants. You know, I always say in when we start meetings and such, and we want to acknowledge where we are and what we're doing, the, the, the relationship between us and the land and the peoples that were here before us and the peoples that are here now, that it's still conflicted. I don't have an answer to it. And I don't think any of us have an answer to it. It's been pretty awesome having some different conversations around it in different ways with different people, including some folks from the Duwamish, that I think it's not as much about giving it back in the sense of that it is something that they want ownership back. But I think the recognition, giving that back, giving the acknowledgement, giving the, the recognition that they stewarded it 
to hear and that we are taking advantage of their work and their care for this land. But I think it's more about bringing people back into relationship with the Duwamish people, with the land in collaboration is what feels kind of the direction that it's going. I, I got the opportunity to sit down with Ken Workman, who's uh, the fifth great-grandson of Chief Seattle. And he's an incredible soul, an incredible storyteller, and and a simple, you know, being able to sort of boil it down and simplify things. And I was asking him, because we're uh, doing the Georgetown steam plant, and the steam plant was one of the first buildings in the valley that kind of helped start the industrialization of the Duwamish Valley. Um, it was prior to moving the river and doing all these things, but we'd already kind of done a bunch of damage. So as as the the new person responsible for that for the next 60 years, or we just signed a 60-year lease on it, how do we reconcile that with the current people that are here and the current land and, and what we've done to it? Um, and it was interesting because his thing was, the main point, the main thing I took away was the Duwamish people don't want people to tear the buildings down and restore things back to nature in that sense, because their ancestors' DNA is actually in these buildings. It's in everything that's here in the sense that the Duwamish people have been living and dying on this land for time immemorial. And as they live and leave their imprint on the land and then die and actually physically are consumed back into the land. Become the land. Become the land. And then and a, the trees. a tree goes out of that land and literally their ancestors' DNA is in that tree. <laughs> and then we come along and we cut that tree down and we build a building or we, we bring the rocks and the, we make concrete and, and we bring the, the things all together to make this building. The, we, we rape the land and the natural resources. We are building something out of the Duwamish DNA, literally. So to honor that and to carry that forward and say, okay, well, we did that, yes. And that maybe wasn't a great thing to cut down all these monument trees and build buildings out of them, but don't screw it up again by taking that and throwing that in the dump, right? Like, let's honor where we're at, acknowledge what the past was, and let's actually do better going into the future. And so that's where, as we try to figure out, like, you know, we're acquiring land now, right? We're purchasing it in this structural economic system from supposed owners that have a piece of paper at the county that says that they own it, regardless of the fact that it's all stolen. There's this thing that we have to kind of exist in this system. And so we're doing that, but how can we use that to leverage a change in that relationship? How can we bring that land under our control and under our stewardship and then do something different that isn't the same as the structural system that prevails here? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's like such an interesting conversation trying to figure out, yeah, how do we how do we best honor and work with the Duwamish people? And I'd be curious to hear like how they feel about recognition versus material transfer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, we don't know the answer to that question. 
yet. We, we hope to partner with the Duwamish to create resources in this new development that can help serve them and serve what they need. You know, the Real Rent Duwamish program, which I think is the most amazing fundraising mechanism ever in the history of mankind, because it, it gets people to acknowledge it on a daily basis. And again, it's sort of like, you know, when I created the ownership for Equinox, it was recognizing that ownership within the structural system that, it, that prevails. Real Rent Duwamish is doing the same thing. It's saying you're on our land and in your system, that means you should pay rent to us. So pay rent. And you know, I love paying real rent to Amish because I believe in that and I believe in, in that they are the stewards and we are the squatters. So in looking at our housing development work, you know, if we could build 2000 apartments and we made it, we make it a requirement that each person has to pay some real rent to Amish. It could be a dollar a month. It could be a hundred dollars a month. It could be a thousand dollars a month, whatever people, whatever's meaningful to that person. But that they have to acknowledge that on a monthly basis, right? And that, that's 2,000 people, or actually that's 5,000 people if you figure out the, how many people live in, a, in an apartment. But literally that could be 20, if everybody gave $10, $10 a month, that would be $20,000, $250,000 a year for the Duwamish people, would be a significant financial influx that could help actually build resources for them and help carry them forward. Not necessarily in, do they want this industrial building with a bunch of deadbeat artists in it? I don't know, but maybe. <laughs> um, but maybe they want the $250,000 so they could build another cultural center and resources that are culturally significant to them. One thing that we talk about on the Interloper podcast is permeable boundaries. This idea that we actually have to have some sort of boundary for survival and for safety, but that there needs to be this kind of give and take that happens within our bodies, within our relationships, et cetera. So I was curious for y'all's experience with a tenant owned organization, what are the boundaries that exist and how do you negotiate holding those boundaries? From my perspective, I don't see a lot of, with, within the community, I don't see a lot of boundaries in the sense of like mine, mine, mine. Um, I see a lot of how can I help you? How can we do this together? I think, you know, there's people have their own space. They have keys, they have locks. We have locks to the buildings. And there's people from the outside that try to get in occasionally to, to do whatever. There is, there is a boundary there um, between the community, this tenant owned community, if you will, and the outside world. We try to be in relationship with people in the neighborhood, but as in most struggling societies with terrible structural systems, there are people that don't have much that would take whatever they can get. So there are these sort of different levels, right? And to that permeability. A boundary is an interesting word choice to like put, to feel like I'm putting between me and the other people here. Although it must happen all the time, you know? Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, 130 really cool people here, but I wouldn't want them all in my bed at night. So there's, there's, there's a boundary there, right? Like I got to have, you know, personal space and personal 
life, um, which overlaps very most of the time. But anyway, yeah. And there's a boundary. Like people, people need to pay us rent, right? Wait, they do. Yeah, I know it's shocking. Shit, that's what's going wrong. You know, you know, we have a, like a standard commercial lease. Um, I've heard Sam. I don't know much about commercial leases, but I've heard Sam describe it as the most tenant-friendly one he could find. Um, and it's you know most leases have like a mandatory late fee if there is not rent deposited by a certain day. I've never seen Sam charge a late fee. Right. Instead, he has a conversation about, okay, what do you need right now? How can we work on this together? What if it like it just causes us to get really creative because we're not living under a rule. We're trying to create agreements. And it's actually something I was talking with a friend earlier, which was like, at some point, when do the police get involved in any sort of conflict? There are so many conflicts that the police never have to get involved in at all. If we could just like locally solve it, community solve it, you know, there's just so many other ways we can actually address it before any sort of physical altercation needs to be involved in making something happen. And it sounds like that's something y'all are able to negotiate from the culture you've created at Equinox, that there is this community vibe that y'all trust each other and are willing to work through things together without having to get anybody outside of your walls involved. Yeah. I mean, we're not, it is not utopia. <laughs> I mean, we, we do have challenges, you know, like, like any group of people, brothers, sisters, family, communities, whatever it is. And we've, we've had some issues, but yes, we, we try to, you know, we try to do it in a different way. Like the first, the first response is not to call, somebody else. The first is response is to call people in and figure out how we could resolve it. Like, what are the things that, what are the challenges for everybody involved and, and how do we resolve that? But we are not always successful at that. And, you know, we are definitely not successful. Like, you know, the, the folks living in an RV community just north of here by half a block that guy walked in here the other day, walked right in the door and was, you know, on drugs or something and, and was pretty threatening and, you know, I had to like, be like, okay, this is not a time that I can be in relationship with this person. It's, it's like that tension just builds when there's a lot of negative community of people that seems to happen, especially over the last two years because of life in pandemic and Seattle and stuff. And the thing is, it, going back to your, your thought of we have to deal with this ourselves, we have to deal with this ourselves because the police won't do anything, pretty much. They'll respond to only like a violent thing, like um, a shooting or something. And even then, there's no therapy, there's no repercussions, there's just like suddenly we have all these people that are breaking and hurting property and each other, and they are our neighbors. And we are the ones left trying to figure out how to do that. But that's, all, I mean, yes. And that's our biggest challenge, right? That's, that's like when we think about Equinox as a community, we have to think about 
beyond walls our walls and beyond yeah. our street and beyond our neighborhood and go to the depth of the system of that we live in and we exist in and we can't just be in this bubble. And so when we start doing this, when we started doing these housing developments, started acquiring land, you know, we have a big, a core belief uh, in an anti-displacement measure, mm -hmm. like yeah. trying to make sure that our work is not displacing people, either residential or industrial or business and or the people living in RVs on the street. Like there are neighbors just as the industrialists or the rich people or the whatever other people. But like the first day that we, you know, took over this one property, I had to ask a guy to move his tent out from in front of the gate so that I could actually get into the property. Well, technically that's displacement, right? I had to, I had to move somebody's life where they were living for my stuff, for whatever I found more important than, than his tent. And I had some claim to ownership or some claim to the right of way or some claim to entry there that, that he did not, but that doesn't matter. It's what is that relationship and do we live that in everything we do, not just to the people that are inside the walls of Equinox, but to the people that are inside all of our communities here, going back and going forward, going to the Duwamish and going to the future residents and businesses here. Like that's, the, those are the bigger challenges. Those are the bigger times where it's like, oh yeah, I don't believe in displacement. All right. Then how do I be in relationship with the person in front of the gate that I need to do something with? Right. And you know, we spent a long time trying to navigate that and we were, you know, in some ways successful and some ways challenged. And as we start to build and become this bigger effect on the neighborhood, we need to be really sure of what we're doing and really be sincere about what we mean. And those, that's, that's the biggest challenge right now as I see it. We've got to do better than just having good intentions. Well, this is more of like a just a conversational question, which is, uh, you said theft begins with private property. Um, that <laughs> quote, I don't know. I was just thinking about that and how maybe private property is actually necessary in the sense of innovation. And I was thinking about intellectual property. And then when I thought about that, I was like, I just told everybody they should do what you're doing, which is an idea, which is like in some ways intellectual property. But I would be curious what your thoughts are on your idea as intellectual property and how you negotiate that? I would say that as a general rule in the universe, that we are not as individual as we think we are. And when we start claiming that our intellectual property is ours, we discount our fellow collaborators. We discount our mother, our father, our ancestors, the people around us, the people that gave us the hamburger and fries at lunch that, you know, gave us the energy, you know, like we, we discount the interwoven nature of everything. And we say, this is mine. And I did this alone, you know, and so I own it. I should benefit from it more than everybody else. And, and that I think is a really slippery slope. I do believe that collaboration is also an incentive to do better, right? That we, when we have what we need and when we are supported and supportive, we can create better things together. Like Jeff Bezos 
didn't get into space on his own, right? He doesn't know how to fly a rocket. He doesn't know how to build a rocket. But he collaborated, (laughs) if you will, (laughs) uh, to build a rocket and to get his ass to space. So I guess my point is we have not and we will not ever be able to claim that we did any of this alone. Jeff Bezos will never be able to claim that he got to space alone, right? Even if he pays all the money and does all the things, it's not alone. Like, ask his mom. <laughs> <laughs> um, so with, with that, I think the leading cause of theft being private property is that if we all had enough, if we just had enough, then we could all actually have time and energy to innovate and have time and energy to create bigger and better systems or bigger and better, stronger, more things that could benefit more people and we could all do better. But when 99% of the people are struggling to put food on the table, they don't have time to think about what they could do tomorrow. They're thinking about how to survive today. And, and that's what we need to change. What you're saying just reminds me a lot of what Melissa was saying at the beginning, which is as soon as we put that word my in front of anything, it starts to discount the reality of how we're all connected and all of our work and what we do and who we are. It actually reminds me of this book called The Developing Mind, which they, they define mind as our brain, our neural system, and then everything we interact with, in particular relationships. And that is our mind, which is just this beautiful idea that like, actually our conversation right now is a part of my mind. <laughs> and like the person listening to us yeah. in their ears right now yeah. is now a part of, we are there, a part of their mind. We are not alone. Scully was right. Wait, who was that? Oh. <laughs> are you quoting the X-Files? I just quoted the X-Files. Nice. For the first time in my entire life, I just quoted the X-Files. Wow, I've never heard, yeah. I just, we, we are not alone. There we go. No, that's great. All right. I think there's a certain amount of privilege wrapped up in all of that as well, but I don't know exactly where that lies. Privilege well, in, in not like a, a positive sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, can we... Can we tease that out at all? What do you mean by that? Well, I I think just in terms of like ownership and defining intellectual or physical property, all of that, it something there's a sense of like privilege and a sense of fear around it of this is mine. Somebody's going to take it. But I think that there's also like a lack of integrity as well of, I mean, some people will take things in a hurtful way. There's a lot of different views on that sort of thing, especially in the art world. I've had teachers say, it's not okay to steal, you gotta create your own. And that's never set right for me. It feels too possessive. Like we're never gonna grow if we're not allowing other people to build on what we've already made as a culture. And so in order to say this is mine you can't have it it takes a certain amount of like privilege and power just to be able to do that i'm really glad you're saying that recognizing that the privilege to be able to own anything and to call something your own takes a certain amount of power and dominion to be able to stake that claim and for someone else to believe it yeah yeah and that's like the dominant structure uh, you keep saying sam the prevailing structure that we have not just like legally but even socially and culturally that allows us to be able to stake claims on anything. I, I agree. I think there's there's a certain amount of privilege that comes with, with that. And that's being able to have this conversation for sure. It's yeah. like, what's the difference between a privilege and a right? You know, it's 
not my right to have it necessarily like my my right as a human being you know uh but and privilege is not necessarily a bad thing if it's used well but we're not there yet <laughs> as a culture <laughs> well and i like the idea of privilege being like it's a reality in it but it's it's the lack of understanding of like how you got what you have and like being able to get there it is that lack of understanding of how you got here and you know for me like the real clincher moment in trying to figure out the the shift from how does Sam own Equinox to how do 150 people own Equinox was really about how did I get here? It was like, I was not alone. I did not do this on my own. Yes, I did a lot of work and I have to do all the paperwork, but I did not do this alone. And, and we need to acknowledge that. And I think that it goes back to the Duwamish. This land did not get here on its own. <laughs> it was a partnership with the Duwamish people and we should we should acknowledge that. And if we don't, then then all we are a bunch of white supremacist privilege. But um <laughs> that uh can't see can't see how we got here. You know, white privilege is all about saying, well, it wasn't me, I didn't do it, and not acknowledging that you benefit from it. Right. And that you're continuing it. And, and that's, that's where we need to start shifting the paradigm and shifting the system. And my approach, my understanding is that if we do that collaboratively, if we work together to get there and everybody has enough to thrive, then we will, we will excel as humanity. We will excel as people and we can actually do things that would that would benefit instead of extract. Well, so if anybody wants to look on their website, equinoxstudios.org, there's actually a really great history of the land that they stand on. Um, you can learn about the Duwamish land and also the World War II history that they have with this building and with this land. So is there anything y'all want people to check out in regards to your work? How can people find out more about you and what you're doing? Uh, I would encourage people to live their own lives instead of trying to figure out what my life is doing. <laughs> and pay some real, real rent to watch. Yeah, go, go, go actually. Pay your rent. Yeah, pay your rent. Go investigate the people that were here before you. Yeah. And, and when you're done doing that, and when you understand it all, then come <laughs> collaborate with us to figure out how we go forward responsibly and respectfully and acknowledge it all together and then then we'll sit around a campfire or a bonfire and tell stories about who we are and what we do <laughs> <laughs> wonderful <laughs> awesome well melissa and sam thank y'all so much this has been thanks great. connor you're welcome thank you it was a pleasure have a beautiful day Let us know what you think and join the conversation at interloperinterloper.com slash podcast, where you can leave us a comment, ask a question, or tell us what we missed or need to go deeper with. Interloper's vision is putting money into the hands of artists, saying the things we aren't supposed to say. If you'd like to support artists or this podcast, go to interloperinterloper.com slash funders to find out ways you can help increase creativity and in conversation. Finally, we release podcasts, new exhibition series, and more on the 29th of each month. The 29th. 
of each month, the 29th of each month. So set your calendars and follow us on Instagram at interloper underscore unlicensed to find out what's next. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you find your podcast. Interloper is a project of the Milkshake Club, which is powered by Shenpike. This episode was produced, edited, and recorded by Connor Walden and Tiffany Danielle Elliott. The song you heard on the podcast today is Lofi en la Fila de la Totiria by Palma Sol. Thank mm-hmm. you.